I have kept my mind aligned. My heart does abide in the one called Christ. But make no mistake, because my faith, just Jesus and I, it suffice. I have kept my eyes and ears to hear my own thoughts and prayers. I have kept my hands to come together, pray for the world. Yes, I am one strong soldier, hashtag boss. Because I can win battles by myself. Oh, and with Jesus, of course. I have kept my heart free of sin and free of hurt, so stop. Stand down, come no closer. I smell your sin from here. My heart is focused, you see. You can't interrupt this. I am focused. It is focused on God and what he can do for me. I have kept my mind. I have kept my eyes and ears. I have kept my hands, my heart, yeah, and my tears. Just Jesus and me. I am a free woman to do me. I am a free woman. I am a free woman. I am a free woman. Kept to myself. Kept in my mind. My hands kept and fingers laced to hold no other even though they go searching to find any kind of warmth. And when I fall, I can lift myself up. Yeah, I'm free. So please, don't come any closer. Don't feel any pity for me. You worry about yours, and I'll worry about mine. It's fine. I don't need to hear your thoughts. And if you don't got time, it's fine. I don't need your prayers. Besides, I'm good here. You can stay there. You can't hurt me, and I can't hurt you. It's better this way. So please, take a step back. Don't come any closer. I can't afford to deal with your mess, and I'm too afraid to show you mine. So I'm good here. Even if it hurts inside, I am good here. Even if I need your words, I'm good here. Even in this overwhelming loneliness, surrounded by copious amounts of rumination, tethered to every single pang from every single wound I've endured while still crying over our broken nation, yeah. I can do it by myself. I'm good here, holding down my fort, lock and key. Yeah, I'm free. I can do it by myself. No you and I, no we. Yeah, just Jesus and me, right? Steph wrote that for today's message specifically because uh, in the world, whether it be Christianity or just people in general, there's, there's this kind of thing that we feel, um, you know, that, that kind of is captured so well in what Steph was talking about. So I want you to just think about that, ponder that while we get into the word today, um, because we're going to be talking about unity. What we've been kind of we've we've been in the book of Acts right now. This is our fourth week as a church and um, as yeah, this is, we can get a little woo -woo for that. Yeah, okay, there we go. 
and our fourth week in the book of Acts. Uh, and our first two weeks, what we did is we, we kind of did a two-week mini-series. We did part one of our series where we talked about the foundation of the church. And we talked about the ascension of Jesus and the descension of the Holy Spirit. And then we, we got into a six-week series, which we're in the middle of now. This is week two of that. And we talk, we're talking about the expansion of the church. What happened once Jesus went up and the Holy Spirit came down? What happened that started this worldwide movement that in just three centuries had taken over most of the known world and is the largest religion known today? How did that happen with just a few people from this little part of Israel called Galilee that nobody really liked and really wasn't known throughout the entire world? And so we're, in this week, we are talking about unity. Last week, we talked about the proclamation of the word and how Peter got up and he, be, he began to describe what happened because the Holy Spirit had come after Jesus ascended into heaven and then people started doing weird things. They started speaking in languages that they never learned before. And so the assumption of the crowd was these people are drunk which was not like a, a, a bad assumption. If you hear somebody speaking gibberish outside, you probably would think they're drunk too. And, uh, but then people were like, wait a second, he's talking in my language, and this person's talking in my language. Like, how, how do they, I'm from Rome, you're from Greece, like, I'm from Africa. How are these people know all of our different languages? And what they were doing is they were glorifying God through the Holy Spirit. And so after that, Peter gets up and he starts to explain. And while he's explaining, he, began, he begins to proclaim the gospel. And after he proclaims the gospel, what happens is that 3,000 people get convicted by this message and convert to Christianity. They accept Jesus and begin to walk in this way. That's what they called it in the very early church. They called it the way. And they, they recognize that Jesus really was the Savior that they have been waiting for. And the early church is birth, right? The, the first megachurch is kind of birth right there. 3,000 people come to know God after Peter preaches the first message in the New Testament after Jesus rose from the dead. And so right after 3,000 people give their life to Christ, and they, and they start following this way, this, this, this testimony of Jesus, you may ask, like, what do you, where do you go from there? What happens? And so we are literally taking up right where we left off from last week, right when Peter was done preaching that message. 3,000 people decide that Jesus was the Savior, the one that we were waiting for, and literally we're taking up Moments later after that, we ended on verse 42 in chapter 2 in Acts last week. We're starting in verse 42, and we're going to read to verse 47. And i got to put my timer on. I was on the preacher. I'll, I'll be up here all day. And so starting in verse 42, it says this. And they devoted themselves, they is the 3,000 people that just came to know Jesus as Savior... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, all those who are being saved. See, the, the first thing that we need to realize about the gospel is last week when we learned about Peter proclaiming this, this good news that Jesus is the Savior that the world has been waiting for. Your fathers and their fathers and their fathers for generations before them, we have been waiting for this moment, Peter said, and it has finally come. This moment that a Savior, God himself, would come down on earth and restore his kingdom on earth and relationship with him again. This moment that we have been waiting for, it has happened. And he begins to also say other things, right? It sounds, it's like, oh, this message is really great. This is really cool. And then he says, because of you, he was crucified and killed. And then it's like, whoa, 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 this isn't very happy anymore. What are you doing to us, Peter? And then Peter says, but guess what? Because of what he's done, because of him coming to earth, dying on the cross, and rising from the dead, we now have the ability to not only recognize our sin, but repent, turn away from our sin. And so, collectively, 3,000 people at that moment repent. They turn away from a former life of unbelief, of, of not really believing that Jesus was the God, the Savior that they had been waiting for, and they begin to believe. And so this is a very much a between me and God thing. And if we were being true to our American culture... We would end the gospel there. Because what we, what we really want is we want this gospel that just changes our relationship with God. And it's just like, hey, this is good news. I can be good with God. And as long as we end it right there, it's good because this is a me thing. It's really easy for me to go home and practice this. It's really easy for me to kind of do this alone and do it on my own terms in my own way. And nobody can get in the way of that. But the thing about what Jesus did is it doesn't only change our relationship with God. The thing about what Jesus did is it changes our relationship with people too. See, if we are, are walking in what we think is salvation and the gospel, and we see that, hey, I've been really good just me and God. But yet I'm fine still with cursing out my neighbor every time they piss me off. Then there's a disconnect between the gospel that Jesus preached and was and what Peter had just explained and what we are believing in our heart. And that's what we have to get in our, in our hearts and in our minds today. That the gospel needs to affect our relationship with people just as much as it, re it re affects our relationship with God.
Our individualistic American culture will tell us as long as we are good with God. I'm good. Yeah, I'm doing me right now. Right? For the amount of times I heard that. I have like this, oh, you just need to get slapped right now just for saying that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank God you just, I can't like virtually slap people through Facebook. or That's why I don't talk on Facebook because I just start... I just get mean really, really quickly. So this is me loving people. It's just me staying silent a lot of times. Because the, the, the amount of times I hear people just with that statement, I'm just, I'm just doing me. And this is, this is part of who we are as a culture. This is part of the American dream. I get the yacht. I get the big home, I get the big salary, I get to do what I want, I have the big bank account, right? That is what the, the culture in our Western world has told us to live for, that if we aren't getting these things, if we aren't moving up the corporate ladder, if our paycheck isn't getting bigger every year, if we aren't able to buy your, yourself more things at the end of the year, then for some reason, then you are not successful, you are not making it in life because the measure of a man and a woman is by how big their paycheck is at the end of the week. And we have bought into this thought as a society that as long as I am good, then I'm good. And we've let that kind of trickle into our culture as a church. That as long as I'm good with God, I'm good. But F you if you ever say something that disrespects me. But see how fast I cut you off when you do something I don't like and I'm not going to talk to you anymore. But watch how quickly when I leave the room, I begin to gossip about the people I was just with. I mean, I grew up in church, and so I remember when I started realizing there was a disconnect. Like, why are these people praying so much, but they're abusing their kids? Why is it that people can be, you know, screaming and shouting and, and loving Jesus on Sunday, but they're getting fired for stealing from other people? Like there, there was these odd disconnects, and God started to just open up scripture to me that, Justin, the gospel doesn't just affect your relationship with me. Yeah, you may, what should happen is you should start loving my word more and, and loving praying and being in relationship with me more. But if that does not begin to change how you begin to treat others, then there is a large disconnect between the gospel of the Bible and the gospel you've been drinking the Kool-Aid of. I'm glad you're laughing at my non-jokes. Now if we can start laughing at my real jokes, then I'd really be, I would just appreciate that. See, scripture, though, shows us an alternative narrative than what Western culture will teach us. Scripture will teach us that being good with people is just as important as being good with God. 
Scripture begins to form our hearts in a different and a new way than what we hear all around us. I'm always skeptical of preaching that just enforces our inherent values as people. Because I, I constantly find in Scripture that the things that Jesus says are just rubbing people the wrong way. There's so many times when, you know, he's gathering these big crowds and then he just says something ridiculous. And you're just like, Jesus, what are you doing here? Like, you, if, if you were around today, you know, he, Jesus would have pitched a tent up with, like, 5,000 people. It would have been revival. Like, he would have just been going at it. It would have been, like, just, mm, all day. So here you go. You got, you're supposed to laugh at those moments. It's okay. Right? That, that would be the... That would be what we would think, right? Because then, you know, he can start building his church and, you know, the TV crews will start coming. They'll start writing papers about him, like the notoriety of Jesus. Start, but he just start. he says ridiculous things and people just walk away because the gospel is hard to swallow. The, 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 to realize that God is more important than anything in your life. And then because of his importance, that people also need to be important. These are hard things to swallow. That when you do something to wrong me, that I'm not supposed to wrong you back, that I'm supposed to forgive you? Oh, forget that. I'm Brooklyn bred, baby. Don't even try that. Like, I carried a knife with me every day in high school because I went to high school in a bad neighborhood. And if you did something, you were going to get stabbed. Like, that's how I grew up. I know people are, like, shocked right now. It's okay. I went to school in Fort Greene, which was like one of the worst neighborhoods in Brooklyn. My friends got jumped all the time. And so this is just, you know, that's how you are raised in Brooklyn. This is just, this is life. But yet, Jesus has an alternative narrative. When somebody steals your cloak, give them your tunic too. What is a cloak and a tunic, right? It's like, if somebody steals your Jordans, give them your gold bracelet. Right? Crazy. Who even thinks this way? But that's the way the gospel should be forming our hearts. That our relationship with Jesus does not disconnect the moment that we're done praying and then we start screaming at somebody on the phone. That our, our prayers with Christ, our worship on Sunday should deeply affect how we treat our co-workers on the weekday. How we treat our peers, our family, and our friends. And this scripture here is the anthem of that. This scripture here goes through how the early church, literally the first church, is born at this moment. And it says that they had all things in common. They start doing crazy things, right, that are incredibly anti our culture today. They start selling their possessions. Later on in Acts, you read that some people are literally selling their homes, their property, because there is a need in their community of believers, right? This is so foreign to us that I would give up something I have and that I want 
because that there's somebody in need. Like, yeah, we think like, oh, that looks really great. Let me share it on Facebook. That would be cool. But actually reaching into your pocket, opening up your wallet and giving of what you have. I remember it used to be like, go write a check, but now it's like, quick pay me. Like of, of actually sacrificing something for the week because you see somebody else that has needs and so you give of what you have to them. This is how the early church responded to the news of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. They were generous. It says that they, they sat down and learned. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They became students and, and desired to understand Jesus. How does he fit into the scriptures? What does that mean for my life? What is this news that you're preaching and speaking to us? The apostles, those were the uh, 11 dudes because one of them was really bad. And so they got, you know, he kind of got, he disqualified himself. Judas. He was the one that betrayed Jesus. And so the 11 apostles, these were the guys that were with Jesus day in and day out for three years. So the people wanted to learn. To be of this one mind, it says that they had fellowship. Uh, we're always, me and my wife are always making fun of this word because Christians are the only people in the world. It's like, hey, let's go fellowship. It's like, what does that even mean? Well, this is where that word comes from, if you're ever wondering. That word means intimacy. It means sharing. It means community. The, the early church, they had fellowship with one another. They shared with one another. They began to build intimate relationships with one another. They began to develop community. They prayed together. We even see that in the, in the beginning of Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit descended, they were there praying together. See, what happens when the story of Jesus truly impacts your life? is it, it doesn't only impact a prayer before a meal or a conversation maybe when you wake up before you go to bed. It doesn't only impact maybe your Bible reading time, but it impacts your relationship with other people so that there begins to be a sense of unity with others that, hey, you are in need, then guess what? I, I'm going to try to supply some of what I have for you. We are going to learn together about what it really means, this, this understanding that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose. How does that affect our lives? Let's learn together. Let's hang out with one another. We now have this shared belief, this understanding that God is all-powerful and has saved us. And people that may have had nothing in common in the past now have the ultimate thing in common. That once we were sinners, but now we are saved. 
And they started doing this, this thing together. It says that they broke bread in their homes and they broke bread as a community. And, and what that, that line is, is that it meant that they had communion. See, communion, if you're familiar with church, uh, communion, or, or maybe your, your background is Catholic, is one of the sacraments. It's, it's something that we do simply because Jesus told us to do it. And the power that it has in a remembrance form. What happens is communion is in the Last Supper before Jesus was crucified. It says that he got his 12 apostles and they sat down. And he broke bread with them. And that's where this line comes from, that they broke bread together. And Jesus said, I want you to do this and repeat this in remembrance of what is about to happen. Remember me when you do this. The apostles at that moment didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about. But when he died, the suffering that he went through, the cross that he was nailed to, the way that he was killed, an innocent man hung like a murderer and a thief. He said, there's something that as a people that you need to do. You need to share meals with each other. And when you do that, when you break bread, remember what I have done. Remember the burden that I have taken. Remember the debt that has been paid. And so how the early church used to have communion is they used to share meals with each other. And in the midst of their meal, they would remember Christ and what he did for them. And how because of his death, because of his suffering, they were now free men and women before God. And it says that awe came upon all. This awe that it talks about, it's this kind of marvelous fear. The same word is used when the disciples, they, when they were hanging out with Jesus and Jesus told them to go on a boat and they went on the boat and then all of a sudden in the middle of the night they saw Jesus walking on water and they, it says that they were like scared, they were in awe, like wow, who is this man? It's like this fear, but this marvelous fear, this wondrous fear. Of, I know he's been saying that he's the Messiah, but seeing him walk on water, wow, is it true? Could he really be this person? It says that that same kind of awe when the disciples saw Jesus walk on water, that same type of awe hit that community this marvelous, wondrous fear of God. Of wow. Only God can bring 3,000 people from all over the world together. People that had never met before. To now being at a place where they're sharing, they're becoming intimate, they are they are have one Savior, one Christ, believing in this Messiah, praying together, learning scripture together. Only Jesus, this, this God-man, could have done this. This awe came upon the community. 
And I've been praying that that same awe comes upon people that come in contact with Zion. Man, those people genuinely love each other. Not like that Christian, hi, smile, I love you on Sunday. And then I go home, yo, I can't stand that guy. It's that fronting love, like, yeah, we know we hate each other, but we're going to smile right now. <laughs> but when they, they come here, people will actually see, man, these people love each other. They care deeply about one another. They share not only a love for God, but a love for their neighbor. I pray that we would be that type of beacon, that type of hope, that when people come, they would not see some religious facade that we do this just because we think we're supposed to do it, but deep down internally in our heart, I hate that one because he did that a year ago to me, and this one looked at me funny this week, so I'm going to start looking at them funny, and this one, I don't like how they walked by me and didn't say hi, so screw you, I ain't going to say hi to you anymore, right? That, that. So much becomes part of our nature and how we interact with others. But God calls us to a deeper level of intimacy, a deeper level of communion with each other, a deeper level of love that truly takes sacrifice, that truly takes looking at the gospel, at what Jesus did and realizing, man, if Jesus can do that for us, then maybe I can give a little bit of my money away. Maybe I can forgive somebody that did me wrong because I did so much wrong to him and did not deserve forgiveness, yet he still forgave. The message of Jesus deeply changes how we interact, how we love, how we are in community with one another. And it's really easy to hear this and think, man, I know who could use that. But I pray that those, these thoughts would be testimonies to ourself. Father, I know how you have rectified my relationship with you, but now teach me how this rectifies my relationship with others. See, that prayer is a prayer that will change the world. The Bible says that they will know you by your fruit or your works. People will come and they will judge. I know how Jesus thought. I know how Jesus lived. But do these people truly care? Do these people truly love? And many times that is so absent from our relationships, that's so absent from our community, that's so absent from who we are as a church, it deeply saddens me. And so that's why that we pray on a regular basis, Father, do not make us just people that love you. Father, help us love others. Rectify not our relationship just with you, but rectify our relationship with others. That's why that we go to one another and apologize when we even think something or do something wrong that the other person doesn't even know about. There are times when I lied to people. They never knew it would have never hurt them. But I had to call them and I had to apologize to them. 
because I knew that it would internally, it would, it, would, it would start separating my relationship with them. I can't think that it's okay to lie. There are times where I mistreated people. You know, it was one of the most painful things for me to do. Before I got married, I thought I was cool. You know, I was playing with a lot of feelings of a lot of women. And there was this one girl. Was, I'm sorry, there was, there was a couple of girls. I'm already trying to lie through this situation right now. That I had to go to them and I had to apologize. Because I flirted with them, I led them on, and I gave them impressions that weren't true. Do you know how awful I felt to go sit down with somebody who is a leader at my church and I had to say how I treated you a man should never treat you. I'm sorry for how I led you on, for how I flirted with you, and for the impressions that I gave you. I still kind of feel crappy saying this right now and thinking about it. Let me tell you, if Jesus hadn't worked in my heart, there is no way in hell I would have had those conversations. It would have been like, oops. Sorry, sucks for you, moving on. And that's the culture that we have. That's the culture that we relate in. But God brought conviction. He said, Justin, these are, these are, these are my daughters. Those are your sisters. You cannot treat people this way. Go show them what a real man is like. Show them what a real son in Christ is like. And so I had to have these incredible, incredibly painful conversations. Because it's just weird. Of, I'm sorry, I'm a jerk. I, I messed up. This is not your fault. I'm the idiot in this respect. Can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Because I did something that wronged you and I shouldn't have done this. And I've had to have a lot of those conversations over time because I'm not perfect. And guess what? As a community, we will not be perfect. And so if we do not understand that how God forgives us, if we do not understand how God loves us, if we do not understand how God is patient with us, how God is long-suffering with us, then how are we going to be like that with others? Because to have this true community, this true fellowship with one another, we need to understand the long-suffering of God, the patience of God, the love and the depth of his grace towards us. And when we're truly understanding that, it begins to inform our relationships with others. This passage starts and ends with this sense of togetherness and devotion. It says that they devoted themselves and they were together. And it's this, one, it's this word that's translated elsewhere as one accord. And it literally means to be devoted to one mind. These people were one body. They were sacrificing for one another. They were caring for one another. 
They were sharing with one another. They were growing in their relationship with God with one another. And when I think of our core value of community, I always think of this passage. And I pray, God, make us a church like this. I want us to shine like a hope in our city. Where now more than ever we are plagued with division. I want the church to be a beacon of unity. This is how true relationship and love and unity can actually form. We have the blueprint, we have the means, and we have the power. Father, I pray that we walk in this, that we act like this. And so I, what I wanted us to do today is have communion. We want to have communion about once a month, and so I thought, what better day than today? Communion is this sense of remembering. Communion is this understanding that God we remember your sacrifice towards us. Because we can talk all we want about loving people. We could talk all we want about patience. We could talk all we want about sacrifice. But if it's not centered on what Jesus has done for us, then it's all just words. We can talk about loving each other. We can talk about suffering for one another, about being in chaos and then growing to love each other more through that chaos. All we want till we're blue in the face. But if we do not center it on the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, then it's all just words. And so I'm going to ask us to stand.